0: Broadcasting from the News Radio 102.9 KARN Radio Center and Studio 1B, it is Gluttony Unplugged with Scott Romine. Hey, Scott here. Hope you're having a great Saturday. I am very excited about our guest today. I actually have a lot of common, I think, with this fella. Hawk Hock Hawkheim is a former MP, police officer, detective, and investigated more than a thousand crimes and arrested nearly as many suspects. He's graduated from numerous national assault and violent death police schools and street survival. Schools. He also organized protection and security for famous authors, politicians, musicians, TV, and movie stars. Over the last 40 years, Hawk has studied martial arts and hand, stick, knife, and gun combat techniques, earning numerous black belts in multiple systems. Welcome to the show, Hawk. Great to talk to you. And how are you today? Oh, I'm good. I am good. You have done so many things. It would take five shows probably to cover (laughs) your life.
1: Perhaps. Yeah.
0: So at some point, you were here in Arkansas as a police officer, correct? Can you tell us your Arkansas yeah. connection?
1: Well, the Arkansas connection is the fall of Saigon. And uh, we were, uh, I was uh, stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma at the time, military police. And we had to uh, emergency assist in evacuation from Vietnam. You know, so we brought the first plane of refugees over, and I was at Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. And uh, we had to uh, literally get there and open up the the base. Chaffee was used off and on, and it was rather stagnant at that time, mid-70s. So, um, you know, we just had to open up the police station, set up the patrol, do all that stuff, you know, to, to kind of get it established.
0: Sure. Yeah, that airplane, the last C-130 out of there is on display at the gates of the Jacksonville air force base. If you come through here. Oh really? Yeah. Kind of neat. So I think I probably know the answer, but when you started early out in, in law enforcement, did you find yourself learning much more on the street than you had in the academy?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I always joke around that, uh, the, the U S army, I went to the military police academy and then the Texas one, Uh, But uh, I always consider the Army my college, you know, and uh, I think just about everything bad that could happen to me the first time happened in the Army in terms of policing. Sure. And so um, the the academies and so at the time I went to the Texas Police Academy, much the same material. But uh, I had an idea, a better working knowledge of what they were telling me. That at that second academy, then I certainly did the first. I don't know; it's always hard to describe. You, uh, uh, I guess, the difference is uh, sitting in a room hearing it and then experiencing <laughs> it is much better.
0: Yeah, very true. I, I gotta wonder though: was there an experience or a specific call where you thought, "Man, I've got to learn some better techniques to deal with it"? So You're getting your butt kicked at some point, or was there a certain turning point for you? Well,
1: uh, I've always, you know, I started in Ed Parker Kempo Karate in 1972 in in Texas when I got down here from New York. And so it's really a friend of mine reminded me that, you know, it's you've been doing this for 50 years, (laughs) 40 years. And so I was doing Parker Kempo and I had an idea about fighting and survival. And Ed Parker was uh, uh, quite a wise character in terms of the books he wrote and the advice he gave, uh, tantamount to, you know, Bruce Lee, except that uh, Ed Parker never made any big movies, you know? Right. So, uh, he had lots of words of wisdom that really rung true for me through the years. And so, um, I was always interested for some bizarre reason, interested in fighting, learning how to fight. I guess ever since I was a kid, you know, watching movies and things like that. And, and I said, God, you know, I want, to, I, I want to know how to do that. And so it's just one of these weird obsessions that take over your life. Some people look at a golf star or a tennis player and say, sure. like, wow, I want to be a tennis star. And so uh, you really don't know why, but you wind up doing it. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, I, I wasn't too naive. And I always knew that uh, it was you were never going to be uh, finished in learning things. And uh, even when we had defensive tactics in the military, they were kind of karate-ish in a way. But, um, you know, it's so fast and furious. And, you know, it helps you to be uh, – it helped me tremendously to have done that before I went in the Army. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I can't really say that uh, a lot of things were happening and I knew what I should do and what I couldn't do because it was a police work deal. But things were very different in the 70s, you know. Yeah. You could do a whole lot and no, nobody really cared. I'm talking about jokes or or hitting a guy or something like that was just no, not a big deal back then. They would hit you, you would hit them, and that was that, <laughs> you know.
0: I, I'm sure you found, I know I kind of saw, real fights aren't nearly as glamorous as Hollywood fights.
1: Yeah, they're ugly. <laughs> yeah. It's ugly ugly chaotic thing i remember uh, uh in texas guy uh, was always fighting with the police and so some poor rookie was sent to his house at a disturbance and there, it was a rookie dispatcher and they didn't know to send backup and so i just left my district and went over there just made a pass by the house and this poor uh, guy he was a kid you know When you're almost 70, everybody's a kid. Sure. uh, uh, He's uh, getting beat up fighting this guy. And so I had to run in there and tell a dispatcher and run in there. Well, anyway, at one point, uh, the whole fight was all over furniture, tipping over chairs. Oh, yeah. And I I just remember at one point I I was on my back and I was under a table from, let's say, my chest up. This guy was on top of me. His head was above the table. And I just looked up and I saw the label on the bottom of the table, and I just had a moment <laughs> of uh, you know just a second of irony pass through me, like yeah here's a here's a fight and I'm under a table you know yeah and, and yeah these things never uh, uh, quite especially in training they never appear. Uh, as they do in real life
0: i ended up in more fights over writing a fire lane ticket than i ever did on calls it's it's <laughs> weird like in your off-duty jobs you end up in more fights in my experience than you do out taking the calls i don't know that's just the weird yeah. odds i guess
1: well, people you know uh in some level or another experience uh, road rage only it's not on the road that's exactly yeah bad day ticking time bombs you know
0: Were police departments that you work with receptive to these new tactics, or were there some resistance to it?
1: Well, they they didn't know the new tactics, and we still have this problem today. Dramatically, you know, I was um, in the nineteen nineties. I was making this big move to go to simulated ammo shooting training, and of course, simunitions was around, beginning to be around. And that, and it was uh, 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 airsoft and gas guns and stuff like that. In particular, airsoft, they were popular in Japan and uh, not here. And so when I started, really pretty much in 1995, trying to get interactive shooting training where you know you get shot at to me you're not learning combat handgunning unless uh, you're shooting at moving thinking people who are shooting back at you true and so you can go to the range and do all that stuff but if you're not interactive shooting each other and uh, you know you can use a safe ammo as you want to be want to can but uh so my re- my reputation was scorned in the 90s as being that guy that played with toys
0: ah. you know?
1: and so that, then of course time marched on and uh when you discover that uh, bin Laden was killed and these special operations people practiced with simulated ammo.
0: Mm-hmm. On,
1: a, on a scaled version of the co- complex and so on. Yeah, it's, Suddenly it came around that uh, it was okay. Now I bring this up because I, one of my guys is a cop here in Texas, and uh, he's uh, been a former Marine about 10 years in policing, and he's starting to become more influential in his agency, pretty middle to big size agency. And they've taken over, some smart guys have taken over the uh, police training and tactics and so forth. And one of the things they're doing that's so shocking is they're using airsoft pistols and training.
0: <laughs> Imagine that. Hey, Scott here, and we're talking with Hawk Hoch- Hockheim. He is a former MP and police officer. He's written, he sold over 45,000 books. He's an author and does all kind of martial arts and stuff. You were talking about bringing sim munitions and things to police departments. For those that don't know what simmunition is, could you kind of clear that up a little bit? Not everybody kind of is familiar with that.
1: Yes, the um it's a patented uh, uh round, usually in a special gun, but you can sometimes adapt them to other pistols, but it's 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 a painful but not super painful or deadly if if you're suited up well with a face shield or whatever. Round, they hurt. Uh-huh. and uh it's a it's a it's an abject lesson but in but uh you can always use smarter lesser lesser things uh ammunition uh to to train with you know isn't like it like
0: blue chalk or something you get hit you someone knows it
1: you can have that you can have paintball there's many many v- varieties now and uh the the thing that always gets me is i was over in England and some <laughs> military guys and they um, the subject came up and th- they were looking at lesser than uh, uh simulation kind of weapons and stuff. And, I, and they said, well, isn't it supposed to hurt? Uh, isn't that the object of it? Well, no, if you and I, if, if I'm practicing pistol retention mm-hmm. and you are pretending to be the attacker and I get 15 or 20 repetitions in on my side, then we switch and then you get to be the guy that shoots the pistol. You don't want to shoot me 20 times with a painful round. You know what I mean? It's counterproductive. Uh, There's no reason to hurt me 20 times with a a rubber bullet or whatever paintball from two feet away. You have lesser, safer equipment so that you could learn the move, practice the retention move or whatever it is that you're doing. And so as a result of that, uh, you know, I use any weapon that I can where I am. For example, if you are in a training academy and you try to shoot simmunitions, you'll break windows, break mirrors, ruin paint jobs. You will scar and dent cars. Mm. You just can't use simmunition all the time. You can just use it some of the time when it's, when you have to.
0: So like when we see these in the move, and it's in movies, like these safe houses type things, those are set up to where you're not using someone's real house. I mean, you're not going to damage anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know. Hey, so why go ahead. When when we're doing uh I have a course, you know, shooting in out and around cars and uh you know, we we use airsoft because uh it doesn't damage cars. Uh, a battery powered airsoft. Yeah. Gas powered has the potential to do it. Uh but so you know, you just have to pick the training device that you need for the, for the moment.
0: Let me ask you about something I always wonder about. I I was a police officer and I've went through a lot of these schools. And one of the things I found when someone like you comes in or kind of does what you do and and they put on a training thing, you know, a police officer could very well find themselves on the ground wrestling over their, their own gun to where now they're in a, a fight for their life. But I've always found that even when I asked an instructor, you know, what is a lethal move? Now now I'm authorized to use lethal force. What is a hand-to-hand lethal move I can make sure this gun doesn't get used on me? Typically, they they will not tell you that or they (laughs) decline to answer that question. And I've put this to several instructors. Is it a legality thing on their end if they show you how to do that? What is, what is the purpose? Well, yes,
1: it, you know, I'm sure that they're afraid of being quoted and, you know, five years later in court that, uh, you know, instructor officer Jones, uh, told me to do this and, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're in some sort of lawsuit or something. So a, they're afraid to tell you, well, yeah. B, they just don't know.
0: Uh, yeah. It's one or the other, because I've never gotten an answer out of somebody because you could have to do that.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they've pretty much outlawed choking, but there's that example that, that, you know, well, uh, unless you're in a lethal force situation, and so you got to spend the rest of your life proving that that was a lethal force situation. And so then there's no choking training uh, for fear. And so the officer who could save his life by using a choke uh, suddenly uh, doesn't know how to do it. So um, it's a, it's a real catch 22,
0: you know, in a similar thought Hawk, I always preferred the Beretta over the Glock for the the simple point that if I were in that situation, if I can get my finger behind the trigger of this gun, he can't shoot me with it, which is not an option on a Glock. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's true. And you know, all of those, those kinds of guns and you know, the, uh, it's just a, a terrible situation and of course the thing, uh, you know, the, the, I trained a lot with, a, a Rhodesian South African, uh, commando, uh, a trainer named Ben Mangles. He's dead now for some time, mm. but, uh, he made the comment that military combatives is about the, is about the throat and the face, usually because every, the bad guys are wearing so much equipment that, ah. that hitting the body and so forth. There's a trouble. And so, uh, when you're fighting for your life uh the throat this particular the windpipe strike is a pretty devastating uh thing to do and that's my you know last death move oh oh no kind of move sure is to, is to strike that windpipe uh, and then of course a cop is going to have to explain that the rest of his life you know in lawsuits yeah. Oh, like that
0: you know talking to you hawk you sound like the real walker texas ranger did you ever work with those guys oh a little time
1: yeah years ago yeah. various ones and uh the uh when it, when a case was big you know i've had some very, pretty big cases and uh murders and you know they have the texas rangers are regional they have companies all over texas and they they uh, a good one will always kind of drop into different detective divisions and say hi and get known. And, and, uh, they kind of like to nose their way into a big case. It makes Austin, it makes them look good in Austin. Are you they, know?
0: are it's they a, essentially like state troopers? What is the whole idea with a well, Texas yeah, Ranger,
1: a state trooper? Okay. Uh, to be a Texas Ranger. Now I have some, uh, friends at LAPD who, Uh, when they would get onto a major task force, these are, you know, sex crime investigating squad leaders, you know,
0: in order to be a Texas Ranger, you have to be a state trooper.
1: Yeah. uh, Yes, uh, you do. Uh, the, uh, you, you, you serve time on the road and a lot of the, the best Texas Rangers i worked with spent time working in other, uh, departments of the DPS department of public safety. And that would be criminal intelligence or auto theft or different divisions. And they become kind of, some of them can become quite uh, good investigators because they have this time and grade of doing this, you know, and then you get, it's an appointment really. In some ah. cases, it's a political appointment to get chosen. And so um, you d- you never know. I know one ranger who spent his almost his whole career on the road, but also in like Weights and Measures, the Driver's License uh, Bureau, and then due to some politi- politics or whatever, he's suddenly a Texas Ranger. Uh, and so, uh, but yes, I've worked with quite a number of them. Yeah.
0: Hey, we're going to take a break here in just a second. Can you, before we do, give out some of your websites?
1: Yes, the double, two words put together, force necessary. You put that together. It's www force
0: Okay. Excellent. And people can go there and I guess, find your books and your training seminars and what's coming up.
1: Yes. And you know, you could always, uh, I'm on Facebook constantly because uh, I have a, uh, thousands and thousands of people connected to me there. And, you know, uh, some people have trouble spelling force necessary, but you'll have real trouble spelling my last name. But It's, <laughs> it's Hawk H O C K. And then the, it's H-O-C-H-H-E-I-M. And there's always a lot of entertainment and a lot of action going on on those Facebook pages.
0: Hey, guys, we're talking with Hawk Hockheim. He is a former MP, police officer, detective. He's sold over 45,000 books. He has done all kinds of things. And one of the things you did is, is training sessions at the U.S. Naval Academy. How did that come about?
1: Well, uh, I knew some people there. <laughs> they really, were, they were students of mine, and and uh, they uh, asked me to go. You know, so uh, I was there. Well, maybe twice a year before nine eleven, and what happens? Here's the, the 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 curse of military training. It happens to me everywhere: the Marines in Quantico, and the the London Metropolitan Police you have a cadre of uh, a cadre of of instructors uh and, and you know leaders and then they constantly change
0: they ah, change sure.
1: staff, they paid staff so you know with the um, uh, the naval academy which is an amazing beautiful place and i just taught anything i wanted hand stick knife gun the the uh you have let's just pick a number i'll say there's 8 of the, quad, uh, the cadre the staff in charge, and then three of them leave. So you get three new guys. You got five guys left that know you, they, they, but you're still they know you. So you come back, mm-hmm. and then you meet the three new guys, and then they then the other three of the five get get transferred or go someplace else, and so you're this this. Uh, when nine eleven hit, they made a dictum that no outside instructors were allowed in for security reasons, <clears throat> and then. Uh, But I got back one more time because one person in the staff was still left that remembered me. And so I taught there and the security was extremely tight. We had some outsider people come in. They were met at the gate, checked out, you know, and and escorted to the facility and all this high security thing. And then that pretty much shut that down, you know, Mm that uh, everybody left. And so this is the curse of dealing with, uh, military academies and schools like that is after a while is you know, the same thing happened in the London police. Uh, the main guys retired and there you go. They, yeah. You just fade away.
0: It's a disservice to the guys that needed the training though. Um, so after nine eleven, you become a paid consultant with United airlines, teaching flight attendant defensive tactics. Now that's, that's unusual. Well, I was uh,
1: associated with a company that uh, was a big security training outfit out of Iowa. They're not they're not in business anymore either. And so one of the guys uh, there uh, made some entry uh, uh, requests into United after 9-11 and uh is a big deal it's a, it's, it's a, it, you have to be approved by a committee of union members and all these different people have to make decisions it's just flat awful you know the process mm-hmm. and so this particular company uh, stuck with it they 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 stuck with trying to sell a defensive tactics course to the entire airline and of course they thought that if I would help them it would help the cause And so they asked me to participate in some, the, the end of the process. And then of course, some of the early training, but I'm not moving to Chicago, you know, to do, to do that. And so we send some of our people, our certified people, uh, to move there, literally move to Chicago and teach. And then of course the, um, whatever year it was, was it? 2004 or whatever we had the economic slowdown and united cut everything you know mm. they even cut their uh buying their coffee their their coffee cups they cut everything wow and uh they then uh, that so that was squashed however I, at that point i had nothing to do with it i just helped kick it off i helped them kick it off write the program and then get it in, instituted and then uh you know, I'm not like I said. I'm not moving to Chicago. I'm <laughs> down here in town. No,
0: I'm out on that. Hey, yeah. you work security for Cindy Crawford. Did she ask about me at all? Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there was a, uh, a, a odd time in my life when, um, as a detective, you get these uh, overtime opportunities, and so um, I met a lot of people in the in public relations as a result of that. And then and then when I retired those people still wanted me to do protective work for the people that were coming through Texas sure going to bookstores that you know it could be an athlete could be a uh, musician a singer a rock band like Green Day or whatever I uh, you know Tom Clancy came through I could not sit here and name all of them sure and so they uh, Jimmy Carter worked with their secret service team uh you know the uh uh, uh so anyway, uh, Cindy Crawford was one of those people. And then she had a makeup book, you know, how to, how to apply makeup. A oh, big I'm sure. book. And so then she came through, you know, trying to sell, uh, the book to various bookstores. And that that was pretty much that.
0: I mean, you being an author, kind of cool to work with Tom Clancy.
1: Uh, yeah, the, uh, I wasn't much of one then, but, uh, it, you know, he had a book and, uh, it came through, and one of the interesting things about that was we were at a bookstore, and they decided to put the, the whole thing, film it, and put it on the internet. Oh! And he was okay with that. This is—I don't know—but this could have been 1998. I just don't remember. Well, what was shocking was the equipment they brought in just to send that picture out. Wow! Rows and rows and rows of computers. Oh, and yeah.
0: You know, today we do it on our cell phone. One phone. But, That's right. Yeah.
1: And, uh, but, you know, I always remember this stuff coming in and saying, what, what is this? A, a a space shot to the moon? I mean, what, yeah. what do you need? <laughs> and, and it was just simply, you know, one uh, sending out uh, a, kind of a, a video of what people do when they come up and get the book and sign it. He signs
0: it and that kind of thing. Kind of archaic technology now. Hey, let me ask you about something. Everybody knows about, you know, getting a concealed carry permit, but to me, a lot of people think that one step is like the only tool they need in their toolbox and personal protection is a lot more than that. Wouldn't you say?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the lucky thing is that most people never have to do anything like that and, and a vast, vast, vast majority of them don't ever have to actually get in, uh, in, in a situation like that. And that is the saving grace of all, all these people running around with pistols uh because it is a delicate as Clint Smith likes to say you know uh, every bullet that comes out of your gun is a lawsuit
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and uh it's a uh a, a, a serious problem even with knives you know you use a knife to protect yourself or your gun it's uh, <clears throat> going to be a hell of a rodeo ride
0: yeah it's true yeah i remember when i was an officer they Offered us like this, I don't know how much it was a month, but it was like a civil defense insurance policy where a lawyer would show up on your side within so many hours and all that. Is that a good idea or would civilians need something like that if you're going to be carrying yep. a gun?
1: There's a huge industry going on now selling insurance to uh, concealed carry people, you know, and, um, they also will have the same thing. Uh, we have lawyers, we'll protect, we you will know, we'll do this and that. And, and, um, I guess it's a good idea, uh, it, because it can be extremely expensive, uh, to just get arrested and bonded out, you know, and all the problems that happen. And, uh, and I'm like saying it's a growing industry.
0: Yeah, it really uh, is. I mean, this I was, mean, was in the nineties Well, I had a policy in the nineties, I think. Yeah. And,
1: you know, we had the same kind of thing with uh, you join a police union and they would they would offer you the same kind of thing. And so uh, the idea was there. But, you know, today it's I I believe it's a booming business.
0: Oh, it have to be insurance,
1: liability insurance to civilians who carry
0: guns. I've got to ask you, because I wonder. When it comes to firearms, are, are you a 1911 or a Glock guy or what exactly?
1: Well, I, I'm a 1911. Yeah, me too. <laughs> guy, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to write about that someday. Uh, I see all these new pistols and uh, they look so ergonomically perfect. Like, wow, I just can't wait to hold that. Now, I bet that's a fantastic gun to shoot. And then when I get around to shooting them, uh, my friends will have them or, you know, I, I teach at some gun ranges and they rent guns out and stuff like that. I just as ergonomic as they appear, I, I just don't like the feel of them. And that's because I guess I'm so used to the 1911. And that's what they handed me in patrol, military police. When I became an Army investigator, they gave me a Stubnose 38, of course. And that's where I kind of love those guns still. And then when I got out. In Texas, you could not have a semi-automatic pistol because they were, as the uh, old uh, cowboy lieutenant would say, there were Buck Rogers guns, like Reagan, (laughs) and uh, it was a wheel gun world, you know. So we all had 357 uh, revolvers, magnum revolvers, and I had a Colt Python for years. And then one of our, we had a, a armed robbery one weekend morning, chased the robbers in a van, and they almost killed one of our guys because he couldn't reload the revolver. And the chief reluctantly allowed us to have semi-automatic pistols. And so that's that's when I went straight back to the 45.
0: I remember in the 80s, you had kind of that those few years, even our department, where the officer themselves could actually use their own personal firearm if it was quality or, or whatever. And that's kind of how it, kind of started in arkansas i don't know if it's the same in texas
1: well uh yeah you could pick your some agencies mandate that they have a certain gun even back then and that kind of makes sense because of gear ammunition stuff like that but uh they could if you you could have a range of weapons between such and such and such and such and if you qualified with it you could carry it and uh pretty much the same thing with the semi-autos we had quite a, a, a variety of uh, guys using a variety of, of handguns and uh, back, you know, I'm so old that a 45 was an automatic. Mm-hmm. You got a 45 automatic. That's what everybody called it. you know? Yeah. And, um, but it is smart for an agency. There's something to be said for large organizations to uh, mandate a certain handgun and for training purposes, you know, <laughs> yeah, Ever the ammo is the same. Everybody's using the same weapon, and and uh, if you fall down and they pick your partner picks up the gun. He knows that gun. Sure. Yeah. He's got ammo for that gun and all like that.
0: I just with your background and experience as a detective and an author and all that, I just want to shoot out some real quick questions that I just want your take on. uh okay. First one here. Uh, we, we got about six minutes or so. Bruce Lee versus Chuck Norris in the real world. Who wins that fight?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, Chuck is a pretty, has a great deal of pain tolerance and endurance from being banged up in those old school, late sixties, seventies, hard ass karate combat things, you know? And, uh, you know, Bruce Lee, uh, uh, smartly adopted, um, to fighting those people had strategies for fighting big people. And mm-hmm. you know, he was kind of short, so he didn't have to fight shorter people, <laughs> older people, big people, you know? And so that, that's a, t- that's a tough one. You could say, you know, maybe, uh, it'd take three out of five uh, fights to try to decide that.
0: I gotcha. Uh, so in your experience watching this guy, cause I wonder myself, is Steven Seagal the, uh, the real deal?
1: Um. I have always felt that Steven Seagal did Aikijitsu and not Aikido. That's really? I've done a lot of Aikijitsu and, you know, it's a lot of hardcore striking and, and bone breaking, joint breaking, ripping material that he seems to do and like. And uh, anyway, he's a tremendous shot. This I know from personal friends. <clears throat> and um, he certainly knows martial arts. Uh, you know, to to what extent uh, he's now kind of making movies to pay his apartment rent.
0: Yeah, you know, it's that's just,
1: what I uh, hear. <laughs> it's just gotten so bad for him, you know, and and uh, he's quite a you know character. Yeah, but uh, he, I would have to say, he's a real martial artist, you know. And but I always have this feeling when I watch the his, his core, choreography of the fights, and you know, that looks a whole lot more like aikijitsu than aikido.
0: Ah, I got you. Okay. Here's another question for you. Are ninjas as we know them in Hollywood with the black suits and all, is it a Hollywood made up thing or is there something real about that?
1: Well, I, I, I know we don't have too much time left, but I still have friends that, you know, dress up in black and go to Japan. Uh, they can't cause of COVID now. And do ninjitsu material, which baffles the common Japanese person. They tell me it would be like <laughs> be like someone from Calif- uh, from Japan, coming to the U.S. dressing up in Civil War clothes and participating in a Civil War. <laughs> it sounds uh, you know. funny.
0: That sounds yeah, like a movie itself.
1: But it, but it's a it, it, it's you know, you look at it, you flip at it, and look at it that way. But these guys love it. They dress up in black. Uh, there was a, you know, a guy in Hatsumi years ago, he's still around and still teaching very old, uh, that, that had some very popular, uh, uh courses. I, I guess it was in the eighties. It sure. was kind of hardcore and it was just flat out ninjitsu. Yeah. But very... pretty much now it's all MMA and Gracie Jiu Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu.
0: Sure. Okay. Here's one, uh, got a little bit of time left. You've investigated a thousand crimes. As an <laughs> investigator, what is your thoughts on the John Benet murder? What the heck do you think happened?
1: Well, uh, that's the Colorado deal. Right?
0: Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. The Isn't little pageant Colorado? girl. The little yeah. pageant girl.
1: The uh, I, you know, I don't know exactly if I've investigated a thousand cases. I've been on several thousand calls and cases, sure. but I don't know if it the number. Usually, we had about eighteen to twenty-two cases a month, and I, for for 17 years, I was a detective. So you have to kind of do the math on that. Everything from triple homicides to potato chip bag thefts from the store. That's the way our division operated. (laughs) Uh, the, uh, that's a bizarre deal. And, uh, I I have a feeling it was mishandled from the beginning. Yep. And the first place you look is missing kids all over the house. And that kid was in the basement. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, a very strange situation. And, uh, I just have an idea. This Boulder, and you know, Boulder is a kind of a la la land. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that their police department back then, and I've taught Boulder narcotics, by the way, years ago. The the uh, you, you know, it, it's just I just I can't figure out that that's that it's unsolved.
0: That is, it's just. It is a baffling, baffling deal, and I still do specials on it to this day. I just wonder with all your investigative experience, if you had some insights or some thoughts on that. You're into the martial arts. Have you followed the success of Cobra Kai?
1: Uh, you know, not particularly. <laughs> I've seen so many, so many fads come and go, so many franchises come and go, that uh, <clears throat> you know, I j- they just bore me. It just <laughs> If I see, you know, somebody's got to – I look into it lightly and take a look around. I, was just at, I had a school last year in, in Georgia, end of last year. Look, kind of look over the material, and I yawn. It's nothing new. It's the, you know, if, if, if in terms of what I do, you know, and and I just, and so I, I can't get excited about it.
0: I understand. It's just,
1: uh, you know, but new people need to continuously no stuff. It's like Dave Spaulding says, you know, it's not new. It's just new to you. That's... And there's a new people that are learning stuff. But the killer of all of these outfits is the, is the franchise fees. Mm. And I can't quite remember what those are or what others are, but I just want to put that warning out that that's why these things go away yeah. is because people get tired of paying the franchise fee and new, new group, inspire oh i'm going to create a franchise system i'm going to you know be all over the world and then you know they're selling uh, uh, cars or something uh, three years later because sure they it's hard to keep a fad going
0: that's true hey you've been so gracious to be on the show today and uh can you give everybody your website and your facebook one more time
1: yeah sure it's a www.com force those two words put together and then the facebook page is you know hawk h-o-c-k which is the nickname i've had my whole life and my dad had too the first half of the last name hawk heim so it's h-o-c-k space h-o-c-h-h-e-i-m
0: well thank you so much hawk for being on the show
1: Okay, well, thanks for asking. You
0: are such a fascinating guy. You guys go have a great Saturday. We'll see you next week on Guatney Unplugged.